Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. If you are unsure where the book of Hebrews is, if you open your Bible all the way to the right, you'll find the book of Revelation at the end. And then if you go backward three or four, five books, you'll find the bigger book of Hebrews after a few smaller books. Hebrews chapter 7, we are making our way through this book at a pretty good pace. And so this morning, we are circling back around to the topic of Melchizedek. All right, I know, you've all been excited and eager to learn everything you can know about Melchizedek. And so I don't want to disappoint you this morning. We're going to take a deeper look at this guy, Melchizedek. And the interesting thing about this is you could read all of the Old Testament. You could read all of the New Testament uh, and you would only have two verses about this guy, Melchizedek. If you took all the Bible together and you just didn't read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews develops this guy, Melchizedek. And it's amazing what you can learn about Melchizedek in a bigger picture, what you learn about Jesus as you look at this guy, Melchizedek. If you've ever been to an awkward party, I love awkward parties, by the way. I'm very comfortable with silence, and I find a lot of humor in in awkward situations. Uh, Sometimes I'm the awkward one. Uh, Sometimes I just observe awkwardness. Uh, I'm the kind of guy that will sit on the edge of a room. I'm kind of an introvert. Uh, I don't really like to be in the middle of people. Some of you are like that, but others of you are like me, where you feel most comfortable on the side of a room. So you get a lot of observable uh, opportunities in that situation. I've been to enough of these small groups or beginnings of groups and different things like that where you always play funny icebreakers and things like that. One of the more popular ones is Two Truths and a Lie where you go around the room and you have to make up a couple of things about yourself and everyone has to guess what's real and what's not. And as you play those games, you always inevitably guess about somebody that's definitely not true of them, and you find out it is, and you think, wow, I thought I knew somebody, right? You ever had a moment like that where you really think you knew somebody? Sometimes we use that phrase, I, I, I thought I knew you better, in a negative way. If you were just to browse social media, there's a hashtag, uh, thought I knew someone, and it's 95% of the time negative. 95% of the time revealing that I thought I knew you, but you turned out to be something different what you are. You turned out to be something surprising. It's almost always used negatively in real world experience because we humans were layered and we're different and we can plot a course in our heart and we can entertain things in our heart that will carry us in a direction in our heart that doesn't necessarily become true of us until years later. I remember writing a senior letter to a graduate in Oklahoma City and his dad had asked me to write him this note of congratulations and and, um, and I did. I was thrilled for the guy. But I also knew that he wasn't, um, he wasn't what he had made himself to be. And so there was a reality in my note that said what you, the direction that you plotted in your heart, college is a time where you're able to fully walk in the path that you've dreamt about for years. And time will tell what path that is. It was just a small bit of insight, but it turned out to be accurate. And it's true for all of us that, that in your heart, In the secrecy of who you are, when no one else is watching, that's who you are. And it's very likely that there are people all around you who don't really know you. People that you put on a front for. People that you act one way with, and then then in your heart, you're someone different. That sort of inconsistency is common to the human experience, but it's not true of Jesus. 
It's not true of Jesus. What we see in Jesus today can be further teased out for good. The depth in which you can know Jesus and the mysteries that He can reveal to us about Himself and about His character and about His personhood, it's inexhaustible. To get to a place where you say, I know all about Jesus, I've heard it all, I I get it, is really to come to a place where you've only stopped searching. It's to stay on the shorelines when there's an entire ocean of who He is. All you have to do is look at the vastness of our universe and realize that in the billions of suns and stars, this is His creative expression. Jesus is so much more than we could ever really know. And if you think you have a few facts understood about Him and you're content to keep Him there, then you're missing out on the depth in which you can know Him. The author of Hebrews is describing how Jesus is compared to Melchizedek. And if you don't know who Melchizedek is, you don't know Jesus as well as you thought you did. There's a lot to say about who Jesus is based on who this guy Melchizedek is. So this morning, I want you to know Jesus better. I want you to see who this person Melchizedek is so that you can know Jesus better. So that you can experience a deeper intimacy, a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what He accomplished for you on the cross. And the author of Hebrews wants you to understand how Jesus became the great high priest after the order of this guy, Melchizedek. And the reason why this is important is that the hearers of this original message were tempted to go back into Judaism. They were tempted to backslide away from Jesus, away from faith, away from walking with God, back into a comfortable way of life that they had known before. Now, all of us can identify with that. You make progress in an area, and you do well in an area, and then at some point you fall away, or you backslide, or you backtrack, or you turn back into something. This is a common experience for us. But these people were tempted to completely leave the faith at all. They didn't, ha- they didn't want to walk with Jesus anymore. It had already cost them a lot, according to Hebrews 10. It had already cost many of them imprisonment. It had already cost many of them suffering and abuse. And so many of them were tempted. Let's just float back into a comfortable Levitical priesthood, expression of our faith. And so the author of Hebrews wants them to persist, to maintain faith, to hold fast to their belief, because he's going to show them that if there's nothing that will satisfy you if you go backward in this faith. Jesus was approached by a man and he said, Jesus, after I bury my father, then I'll come follow you. And Jesus said, you know, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. And he's basically saying, I'm going to wait until everything in my life is when I get my inheritance, when my dad passes away years from now, then I'm going to follow you. Many people have that sort of shallow commitment that they think later in life I'll follow Jesus. But Jesus said no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Meaning that there is a persistence in our faith. It's a walk. It's like a marathon. And we have to continue walking with Jesus by faith. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants them to do. Stop going backward. Persist forward. And he's in this particular place saying, Jesus is greater than anything that you could experience. He's more satisfying than anything else that you could go back to. So he wants them to hear this by introducing them to this figure, Melchizedek. He started this in chapter 5. And then he said, but wait a second, you can't really hear this yet because you're too dull of hearing. And he went back into this whole side conversation about how their faith was immature at this point. But now he's circling back into 
understanding who Melchizedek is and how it can strengthen their persistent faith in Jesus. So let's read chapter 7, verses 1 through 10 together this morning. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. Now let me just unpack a couple of things in this passage. It says he is priest of the Most High God, the El Elyon. In the ancient Near East, they wouldn't have had necessarily a plurality of gods like you might find in India or somewhere like that where there are just millions of deities. They would have had a henotheistic society in which there was a hierarchy of deities. There were mid-range deities, low-range deities, regional deities, uh, deities that might be a part, but they were all part of a system. And there was this Most High God. And this is how Melchizedek is designated in this pagan society. He is the Most High Priest of the Most High God. And he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him, verse 2, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. That is, he gave him 10% of all that he had from this slaughter of these five kings. This Melchizedek, continuing to verse 2, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchi means king. Zedek means righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. That's his name. So he is a righteous king. He is also king of Salem. Salem is the word shalom for peace. He is also the king of peace. So this righteous king of peace is who Melchizedek is. Verse 3 says that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was? To whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We'll stop there just because I don't want the fog to continue, right? You start to read all this and it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Don't worry, Charles is going to preach next week. And he's going to clear everything up in verses 11 through 22. This is a tough passage. And there's a lot to understand here. But let me kind of bottom line it for us. The Levitical priesthood was temporary, weak, and it was becoming obsolete. As a matter of fact, by the time that this was written, it could have been after 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and there were no longer any sacrifices being made on a daily basis. There haven't been sacrifices made in Jerusalem since that time. This could have actually already happened, if not was about to happen. And so when the author of Hebrews uh, was describing to them, don't go backward into this, he's saying that this old covenant is weak and it's obsolete in this law that you used to follow this way in which you became righteous or tried to become righteous. Don't go back there. It can't satisfy you. It has no power over you. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. This is one of these beautiful passages that I like. 
Now, the point in what we are saying is this, right? Don't you like that kind of clarity? When things are confusing, when you're just reading along, chapter 8 and 1, he says, Now, the point in all that I'm saying is this. We have a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, and he's going to go on to describe the high priestly ministry of Jesus. He's basically saying, Jesus is better than the priesthood that you're trying to go back to. Don't go back to it. Don't go back to a system in which you're offering sacrifices and you're trying to live out your own righteousness. Jesus is better than that. And if you will place your faith in Jesus, you will find satisfaction for your soul. You will find what your heart is longing for. You'll find fulfillment in Christ. Not backwards, forwards. And he's basing all this on this passage in Genesis 14 that we read a little while ago that Abraham went and chased down these kings and he slaughtered them and he, uh, 318 of his trained men took on these five armies and he beat them and on his way back through he was blessed by Melchizedek. And this is what happened. This took place about 2,000 years before Christ in the Valley of Siddim. And this was 150 miles north that Abraham traveled to defeat these, these kings. It's interesting what we can learn here in this passage about Melchizedek. There are nine things I want you to see about Melchizedek. Nine things. Number one, he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. There was no one else more righteous than this Melchizedek. Number two, he is the king of Salem. That is the king of peace. So there was no one who offered peace more than this guy. You notice he has nothing to do with the skirmishes. These four Canaanite kings, uh, five Canaanite kings rebelled and they were taken into captivity by these Mesopotamian kings who traveled all this way, hundreds of miles down to take over and, and took all the plunder and went all the way back north to Mesopotamia. This king of Salem had nothing to do with them. But he was greater than all of them because he was a king of peace. The third thing we learn about Melchizedek is that he was the priest of the Most High God. He was the priest of the Most High God. The fourth thing we see is that he blessed Abraham. He spoke a blessing to Abraham. Abraham came to him and Abraham was humbled before him and Abraham was submissive to him and he spoke a blessing over Abraham and the blessing that he spoke over Abraham came true. It came true 25 years later when Abraham received the son of promise. That was last week's sermon. This Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham. He received 10% of everything. It's interesting that Melchizedek would receive a tithe because in receiving what Abraham had to offer, he acknowledged his worthiness to receive those tithes. One of the evidences that we have for the deity of Jesus is that in his earthly life, in his earthly ministry, Jesus did what? He forgave people of their sins. And all of his skeptics, all those who were against him, all of those opposed to him, said, who does this guy think he is? that He would forgive sins. Who does this guy think he is that He would forgive sins? And Jesus would say, just so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, and He would heal a guy. He would heal a guy showing that He had the authority over spirits, over nature, over people. Jesus also received worship in the form of offerings. This Melchizedek received offerings demonstrating His superiority over Abraham. We also learned about Melchizedek that he has no genealogy. He's without father or mother. Now you would read this and you would think that this is this is incredibly mysterious. This guy is this a is this a Christophany? Is this a pre-incarnate Jesus? You know there are times when Jesus shows up in the Old Testament before Jesus is Jesus. 
capital A, angel of the Lord. All these references when he is with Gideon, when he is with uh, Moses in the burning bush. There are all these places when he's with Abraham, right before uh, Abraham, uh, right before they go down and they uh, investigate Sodom and Gomorrah. There are all these times when Jesus is showing up in the Old Testament. And based on this passage, you would think Melchizedek must be a pre-incarnate. He must be like Jesus showing up incognito before. But it's basically just saying that this person has no genealogy that was recorded. There's no father or mother recorded here. But if you look at extra biblical writings, the Apocrypha and other things from the old, from the, uh, the intertestamental period, you see all these places where Melchizedek is compared to Elijah. And he's in the company of all these incredible people. So there's some mystery around him. But this is not a Christophany. Melchizedek is a type or a shadow that points forward to Jesus. If you understood Melchizedek, you would have a a better understanding of who Jesus was. If you understood his ministry, you would have a better understanding of who Jesus is and what he would do. This is not Jesus. This is not a Christophany. He is a type or a shadow that points forward to Jesus. This is an incomplete picture. He's a piece of a puzzle. And so you can put these pieces of a puzzle together and have some idea of what the picture would be, but he is not the full picture. He is not Jesus. He resembles Jesus, and the text itself tells us this in verse 3. But resembling the Son of God, He continues a priest forever. Anytime there's a Christophany, anytime there's an angel of the Lord, there's no doubt who this is. Moses, take off your feet. The ground you're standing on is holy. This is a reception of worship. When the angel of the Lord visits Abraham, he he takes off his shoes, he bows down low, he, he prepares an offering for him, and he receives it. This is not Jesus, Melchizedek. Number seven, he is listed as having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest. It just means we have no record of his beginning. We have no record of his end. He is called great and he is superior to Abraham. Now, this is important for this audience because Abraham was everything, right? He's the founder of the faith. He's the patriarch of everything. And so for those who are looking to go backward And what they would think would be pursuing an Abrahamic faith, that they would go backward into that. The author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is greater than that because he is in line of Melchizedek. So even though Melchizedek resembles Jesus, he's not Jesus. So what can we learn about Jesus in his role of high priest based on who he is? We see clearly that Jesus is the king of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the righteousness of God. Philippians 3.9 says that we may be found in Jesus not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law but that which is through what? Faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In all these ways, we see Jesus as righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? For you to be righteous means for you to appeal to your own goodness. For you to say, I'm a good person. And based on my goodness, I have the ability to have a relationship with God. You might see yourself as self-righteous. You might be proud of how righteous you are. 
If you struggle with the concept that Jesus Christ would need to go through a torturous death on your behalf, that if you were the only one who lived, that He would still have to be punished and abused and sacrificed in this way, if that's hard for you to understand because you have a self-righteousness, because you feel moral, because you feel like you've got it all together, because you feel like you're a good person, you're misunderstanding the Gospel. Romans 3 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. That there is no standing between you and God based on anything that you've done. You can't be good enough. We have no righteous standing on our own because we are children of Adam. Adam was condemned because he broke the law. He broke God's holiness. He transgressed the commandment, right? And by doing so, the first man ushered sin into the world. And so like a genetic disease, we all are infected with sin. And because of that infection, we have no righteousness. We have no right standing. Romans is going to describe the purpose of the law. So you say, why do we have the law? If if we can't be good enough, why would God give us all these rules? In Romans, Paul tells the Romans that he did it. The law is there as a schoolmaster to teach you that you cannot be righteous. You can't be good enough on your own. Some of you are trying. It's wearying watching you. It's exhausting watching you try to earn salvation through good works, by being moral, by being a good person, by having a good heart, whatever that means. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to see that God would say the only way you could be saved, the only hope for you, is the brutal beating and execution of my only son. That's why the gospel's offensive. Because you don't think of yourself that way, do you? You think, well, Hitler was a bad guy. I'm not a bad guy. You think, well, my neighbor's a terrible person. You should see my spouse. Don't point, but you think some of those things. That this is a terrible person, but not me. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I deserve heaven. And by doing that, we deny the necessity for Jesus. You say to yourself, well, I'm good enough. I don't need Jesus. Jesus is for the addict. Jesus is for the prostitute. Jesus is for the sinner. And for me, I say yes. And I was all those things. Maybe not all those things. But I was a sinner in need of grace. I needed Jesus. I visited a church as a 16-year-old, as atheistic, immoral as, as I could be. And I walked into this church and this man told me, asked me if I slept in my shirt that night. And I said, in my mind, I didn't, I didn't get it. Did you see me yesterday? I don't think I wore this shirt yesterday. I didn't understand it. He slapped. I didn't feel the sting of the slap until 30 minutes later when I realized my shirt was too wrinkled to be in this guy's presence. I couldn't come to church and be with him because I had a wrinkled shirt on. That's self-righteousness. Listen, if you're here seeking Christ and someone said to you, you don't look right, I just want you to know that they're probably not a believer. If they have a righteousness that says you have to dress a certain way, that it says you have to act a certain way, that you have to believe a certain way, you have to look a certain way. That is not the righteousness of Christ. Do you know who Jesus was? Jesus was a friend of sinners, right? Jesus gladly ate with tax collectors and sinners. you know who Jesus was comfortable with? A woman whom He drove seven demons out of, crying on His feet and washing His feet with her hair. I don't know why we become self-righteous. I don't know why we become so proud of our morality, thinking that it earns us some sort of favor with God. But it's not the Gospel. And it's not Jesus. It's some sort of man-made religion 
that we get into that says we can be righteous by being good. And the gospel says you are not good. The gospel says you needed the cross. The only hope for you is Jesus' death on the cross. And to the degree that you say, yes, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus is to the degree that you will receive the promise of eternity. What did Jesus say? The tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes, they're entering the gates of heaven before you. All of you who are self-righteous, all of you who are proud, all of you who are ultra-religious, all of you who can quote you know, the, the, the Old Testament frontward, backward, all of you who can do this, but you don't have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that you're like a whitewashed tomb full of sin, but clean on the outside. And there's more hope for the sinner at the back of the room who is beating his breast saying, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner, than there is for the self-righteous. And that's good news. That's good news for all of you who say, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. That's the righteousness of God. And that's the gift of the gospel. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants them to embrace. The bread of life who satisfies. Lord Jesus, we, we worship you this morning for your amazing grace. We praise you that you would go to the cross for a sinner such as I. We thank you that you would have your body broken and your blood spilled out on behalf of sinners like us. Would you forgive us? Forgive those who are sitting smugly in their own self-righteousness that are content with their own goodness that deny the need for the death of Jesus on the cross, thinking that that was for somebody else, somebody who's a worse sinner than they are. Thank You for the grace that says, I forgive You and I will redeem You. Thank You, Jesus, for Your gift of life. And I pray that we would embrace You. That we would not turn from You, but that we would hold fast to our faith in You. Forgive us when we think that it is by our own works of righteousness that we can be saved. Your word says in Ephesians 2 that it is not by works, it is by grace that you are saved. I pray that we would follow you in that salvation and persist in our faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.